morning, everyone. So um, if you're visiting, I'm Pastor Chris, uh, and love to get to know you better. So please introduce yourself if um, we haven't met yet. So we are walking through the book of Genesis, um, and we find ourselves in chapter 4 this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, it's pretty easy to find, um, even if you're not familiar with the Bible. There's one in the pew in front of you there, and it's on page three. So, right, right at the beginning. So, as you're turning there, I want you to think. It's kind of rhetorical questions, gets you thinking. Have you ever found yourself taking out your anger at God on other people? Sometimes we're not aware of the fact that we're angry at God. We just are angry at our circumstances or what's going on. But if we ask a few why questions and get down underneath, we realize, yeah, I don't like the cards that have been dealt. So it could be anger at God, frustration, disappointment, and it's vertical, but we take it out horizontally. Another question. Have you ever interacted with someone who was playing the victim when they were actually the perpetrator? Maybe someone was very manipulative and they used self-pity to kind of turn things like that. So I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing many of us have, you know, kind of experienced that dynamic. Now, the question is, have you ever found that dynamic at play in your heart? It's really easy to see it in somebody else and be kind of disgusted or frustrated or annoyed with it, but sometimes we're kind of blind to it in our own hearts. So, as we head into Genesis 4, these early chapters of Genesis are the origin stories of our world. Okay? They are the clearest window into why we are the way that we are as a human race. Okay, there's so much wisdom in here on all the big questions that we face. If you, you know, turn the noise down for just a few minutes and have some of those quiet moments before you try to fall asleep and you're looking at the ceiling, the big questions that come up again and again and again, so many of them are addressed here. There's so much in in response to the big why questions of life. This is the headwaters of why we are positively relational beings, why we love and why we want to be loved. But there's also tons of wisdom here on why things are not the way they're supposed to be. So we see the nature of Satan's schemes and temptations, that there is an enemy of God, and that there's a spiritual battle that's being waged. We see the nature of sin's false promises. We see the headwaters of so much strife relationally, maritally, brokenness, dysfunction. And here also is the genesis, the birthplace of things like jealousy, envy, hate, violence. So, 
how often when things, you know, we see how things are not the way they're supposed to be, we go back, you know, we say, well, the person's childhood or their parents or their upbringing, and certainly those can, things can explain a lot. A lot of insight can be gained there, but oftentimes we don't go far, back far enough. We need to go all the way back. Here in Genesis is the real mother load of why we are the way we are, okay? So we would do well to camp out here, which is why we're doing this. And these chapters, not necessarily my message, I'm not trying to, but these chapters are going to help us more than the latest TED Talk. There's a lot of good TED Talks out there, but I'm just saying, God's wisdom always trumps the wisdom of humans. So let's dive in. There's an outline in the bulletin. You'll see the, the points on the slides as well. And we'll look at the text as we read down through it. So first point, beware of Cain. Let me just pray for us again before we dive in here. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the truths that we've sung, that they are true, that we can come as we are to you. We can be reconciled to you because of your great, great love. You are a good and gracious king, and it's so clear here in Genesis 4. Help us to see it. It's so true throughout the Bible and human history. Help us to see it. And even in our own lives, even with us being here this morning and you want to show us your goodness, your graciousness, your mercy, and you want to change us and make us more like Jesus. So please do that. Help us all to welcome that work and not resist it. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you and with others. Lord, help us to see our own hearts, the, the stuff that's really in there and Father, I pray that you would pour out your love into our hearts by your Spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. We can love and not hate because Jesus first loved us. Help us, see the, help us to see the glory of that and to just love it and treasure it and be filled up by your gracious love and pour it out on others. Please change us by your grace. Give us eyes to see what we need to see in your word and soft, receptive hearts to be changed by it. So help us to engage with you right now. Drive away the distractions. Help us, none of us, to be passive now as we study your word. Actively engage with you and listen to what you have to say. So have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first point, beware of Cain. Uh, these first 16 verses are kind of the first half. And for what it's worth, this is going to be by far the longest point. Okay, so you might look at your watch at the end of point one and go, oh my word, we're going to be here till." Okay, it's, it's not going to happen. All right, so Adam knew his wife. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, or help of Yahweh, that's his name. And you see those four capital letters. It's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So the name Cain 
sounds like the word for gained or obtained or gotten, okay? So I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So there's kind of some overtones of optimism here because in chapter 3, the war begins between the serpent and the seed of the woman, and there's going to be this enmity, there's this war, this struggle. And so maybe he's going to be the one to crush the serpent's head, right? Because the offspring is going to crush his head. Maybe. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Abel's name is the same word that's translated in Ecclesiastes 1.1, vanity of vanities. So, Hevel Hevelim, Abel, in English. So his name means something like vapor or breath, like transient. So Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain, a worker of ground. We'll come back to those names. In the course of time, or actually we'll come back to Abel's name, not so much Cain's, but in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So do you see first that the Lord looks on the person and then on the offering. He had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It means, this regard means he was pleased with. Okay, he looked favorably on Abel's offering, but not Cain's. He accepted Abel's offering, but did not accept Cain's. Why? Is it because Cain didn't bring an animal? Is it like arbitrary? Have you ever read this and just kind of been a little sympathetic for Cain? Like, what's the deal? He brought it. Is God just playing favorites? Well, let's keep reading here. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Like he's downcast, he's crestfallen, depressed even. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So we know that the text referred to their professions, right? Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. So it makes sense that they would bring offerings from their respective professions. So both animal and agricultural offerings were legitimate as the story unfolds further on. They both had their place. So the issue was Cain's heart. It's proven out by his response. Okay, so some commentators point out maybe there's a pointer in the text because it doesn't say first fruits of the ground, which later on in the law, the, the sacrificial system, that was a requirement. You can look at Exodus 23, 19 or Leviticus 2.14 if you want to look that up. So perhaps that was an indicator of the, the kind of like half-hearted offering that came, brought kind of a mediocre offering, and Abel brought his best. But it's also possible that the reality of their sacrifices was not visible, the acceptability or not acceptability wasn't even visible to the, to the eye. It was something only God could judge because it was a matter of the heart. So, I mean, we know sacrifice 
was never an automatic thing in the Bible, right? Like, well, you just bring it. It doesn't matter where your heart's at. No, that's why in Amos, God's like, just shut the doors. I don't want your sacrifices. Like, you're, you're, you're going through the motions on Sunday, Saturday, bringing the sacrifices, but you're living like, you know, wickedly the rest of the week. I don't want your, I don't need it. It's not like I, I get hungry and I need you to offer me some animals. No. He wanted their hearts. That's why Jesus warned, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's why in the prophets you hear language like, to obey is better than sacrifice. Okay? So it was a heart issue underneath the sacrifice issue that led to being accepted or not. So also, don't miss God's disposition toward Cain here. It's amazing. This is not stiff-armed rejection. Like, okay, you had your chance. Next. It's this merciful, loving invitation for Cain to trust him and obey and do well. Bring the right sacrifice from the right heart. So God gave him an opportunity. He could have trusted and obeyed. He could have been accepted. But instead, what he did is he chose to nurse self-pity and jealousy and anger, and it curdled, and he took it out on his brother. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, far enough away so that nobody could hear the cries, there would be no witnesses. This is premeditated murder here. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The first murder, the first martyr. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Just like God asked Adam, where are you? It's not like he doesn't know. Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? No remorse. Bold face lie to God's face. He did know. And that question, am I my brother's keeper? Okay, so maybe not technically. He's, he's not technically his brother's keeper. He was called to love his brother, not hate him and kill him. But think of the heart behind that question. God asks Cain a question. He's questioning him. And Cain fires back in such a way as to question and judge God's question as illegitimate. Like, what are you asking me that for? So Cain is now betraying his lineage. Whose offspring are you, Cain? Who's your father? Well, the liar and the father of lies. So Cain is offspring of the serpent at enmity with the offspring of the woman and seeking to destroy the offspring of the woman, which is why he killed Abel. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's crying out for justice. Verse 11, and now you are cursed. You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So in Genesis 3, the serpent was cursed directly, but Adam and Eve were not cursed. The ground was cursed, but God didn't curse Adam. Childbirth was going to be painful, but Eve wasn't cursed. But here, sadly, Cain is actually cursed himself, which aligns him 
once more with the serpent who was cursed. So more confirmation that he is the offspring of the serpent. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from, the, from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So you can imagine, Cain would expect the avenger of blood to be on his heels. I mean, Cain's like a guy that has a bounty on his head, right? But did it strike you as particularly ugly how he responded here? Let me read it again with some emphasis and see if, if you see what I'm trying to get at. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me will kill me. Guess what? Genesis, origins. Here we have the world's first narcissist. Cain is bemoaning his punishment, not his sin of murdering his brother. He's saying that his punishment, meted out by the perfectly just and merciful, we've already seen, we'll see it again, merciful God, has more than he can bear. It's all about him. And whoever finds me will kill me. He, the murderer, is fearfully complaining of the prospect of being killed. His sorrow is just as self-absorbed as his sin. He's obsessed with the cost to him, not to God, breaking the heart of God, not the cost to Abel, he's taken his life, not the cost to his parents, he's killed their son. So several theologians like Augustine and Luther have referred to sin as homo incurvatus and se, okay, Latin for humanity curved in on itself. Okay, so we were made to live up and open to God and out open to others in love, loving God, loving our neighbor. Sin causes us to turn in on ourselves. That's the gravitational pull of sin. It pulls us down and inward, down away from God, inward away from others. So, brothers and sisters, beware of Cain, of the way of Cain. Sin, 4-7, is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It wants to dominate you and pounce on you and devour you, but you must rule over it. Or, in other words, I think this was John Owen. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So there's an important lesson for us here, the need to make war with sin. Don't hold this out at arm's length. We so often pander to our sin. We toy with it. Just a little. I can control that. It's like a little bit of poison pill won't kill me. Sexual temptation. Just a little bit. I can control this. What are you toying with right now? What am I toying with? What kinds of things compete with God's 
first and rightful place in my heart, and I want to justify that just enough where I can have my cake and eat it too. No, we need to make war with our sin. I've often been helped and kind of brought back to reality with Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or a few other passages in Romans, just the need to be killing sin so that sin won't be killing us. Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your body to make you obey its passions. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Or Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Sinful nature, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, back to Genesis 4. Look at verse 15. So then the Lord said to him, not so. Like, anyone who finds me is going to kill me. Not so, the Lord says. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Do we know, is there anything hidden in the Hebrew to know what the mark was? Nope. (laughs) No idea what it was. But there's something really interesting about the word mark. It's the same word as sign, sign of the covenant in chapter 9 with the rainbow. Now, I'm not saying that God makes this, you know, full-blown covenant with, with Cain, but the point is he's being incredibly merciful here for this murderer. So, back to that whole thing. Have you ever in the past been sympathetic toward Cain and a little suspicious of God? Anybody willing to admit? I have. (laughs) So I'm going to just application here, a little plug. It does speak of our need to learn to read the Bible really carefully. So we're actually going to do a seminar this Saturday on how to study the Bible. The point is not so that we can, you know, get a bunch of you know, trivia in our heads. The point is, is how we read the Bible really informs our view of God. We need to read the Bible carefully and allow the Bible to shape our understanding of God rather than projecting something on Him. So anyway, I encourage you to come this Saturday, 9 to 12. But I think it also speaks, if we have that tendency to maybe be sympathetic toward Cain, a little suspicious of God, I think we tend to be somewhat spring-loaded to question and doubt God's goodness. The seed of doubt that was planted by the serpent in the beginning, chapter 3, that seed has gone very deep. So it's a good reminder to be on guard and regularly feed our faith. Let's keep going. Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, that's such, that should be such a sad phrase, away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Over and over again, the Bible makes it clear, sin separates us from our good and loving God. So Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were evicted from the Garden of Eden. And which side did they go out on? Come on, anybody. East, the east side. So going east doesn't have good connotations. 
So as a result of Cain's sin, he's settling in the land of Nod, which that word means wandering, further east, further into exile. That's the point. So beware of Cain. And I mean that actually in two senses. First, we've got to beware of our inner Cain. (laughs) Okay, do you guys know what a zero-sum game is? Life is not a zero-sum game. It means, you know, there's a game where one person's gain is another person's loss. Okay, so one wins, the other loses. One person's advantage necessarily means disadvantage for the other. So that's not like a, you can contrast it with a win-win situation. Okay, so Cain was angry. His face fell. Why? He was mad at God. He felt like the victim when, in fact, he was the perpetrator. So you can imagine Cain's mental narrative. I do this, and I, I sacrifice, I brought these, and what do I get? I guess it just wasn't good enough. It's never enough. He's the favored son. I'm the reject. I can't please God. It's always my fault. The perpetrator plays the narrative as the victim. We need to be aware. We all have a little bit of this in us. And sin like a crouching lion, tiger, ready to pounce, strengthened by the minute by that kind of hellish narrative, I mean, this is Satan prowling about, seeking whom he may devour, whispering in Cain's ear, in our ear, turning him, turning us away from God, luring him, luring us into the gaping jaws. Okay, so acceptance is not being unfairly held, withheld from Cain out of partiality. It's not true. God told him with a loving invitation. He said, offer a right sacrifice and you'll be accepted. So Cain's mindset is actually a mindset of the serpent. Satan thinks this world is a zero-sum game. If God's glory increases, mine's going to necessarily decrease. I hate that. I want the glory. So he slithers in and attacks It's why we are so often jealous and slanderous and covetous and murderous. We want the glory for ourselves. We at least want more for ourselves. And if you you have more, then I'll have less. So if I can undercut you, then I can step up a little bit. I mean, this is a really stupid example, but you know in conversation with somebody where you you say something and they say, well, that's nothing, I, I... So instead of trusting the Lord and being lifted up, he would have been accepted. His face fell. The Lord would have lifted up his face. Cain took matters into his own hands, and he rose up against his brother. So whoever humbles himself will be exalted like Abel. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. God will take him down like Cain. So why is it? Why does the vertical go horizontal? Is it that he hates that he has failed and his brother has in his eyes, succeeded. I hate that I did the wrong thing and you did the right thing. I hate that I look bad and you look good. He wanted approval more than he wanted the approver. He didn't want the smile of God because he could have had that. He wanted to win. He wanted to not lose. He wanted to be the one who did the right thing. Pride was ruling. 
Do you see what I'm saying? Beware of Cain. I don't know. I mean, I need to hear this. Pride ruled and the crouching lion pounced and devoured him. So you can see how this is the genesis of so much that we need to learn about ourselves. So Cain's anger at God mutates into spite toward his brother, and he viewed Abel as an enemy. Like, again, zero-sum game. The Lord was pleased with Abel's offering rather than mine. If he wasn't in the picture, the Lord would have smiled on me. You see? Hate him. No, the issue is vertical. He hadn't offered a pleasing sacrifice. He could have. So acceptance with God is not a zero-sum game. This is such good news. Listen to me here. The one thing, like life is not a zero-sum game. The one thing that we all need is available to all of us in infinite supply. (laughs) Are you hearing me? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so often it's like, if I could get a better job, or if I could get this, or if I was prettier, if I was, you know, like, they're better, I'm worse, you know, and there's maybe limited opportunities, and that can be so frustrating. But what if the thing you most need, the thing that really is the most joy-giving, satisfying thing in the universe is actually available to all of us in fullness forever? Like, if, if we believe that, wouldn't all the strife and contention just melt away? And that's actually reality. This is all a lie that Cain is buying. So we need to beware of sin crouching at the door. Why did Cain murder his brother? First John, Todd read it. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous and it was threatening to him and he hated it. So sin's like a tiger in the weeds, a snake in the grass, whatever you want to call it. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Listen to 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Abel exercised faith. We see that in Hebrews 11. Cain did not. So, that's one of the ways that the Bible itself applies Genesis 4, is to beware of the way of Cain and not follow in his footsteps. It also warns us of Cain because if we are aligned with Jesus, if we are children of God, then the world is going to hate us. Do you, do you see how First John continues in verse 13? So after it talks about don't be like Cain, he murdered his brother, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you just like Cain hated Abel, okay? So if you and I, if we need everyone to like us and be happy with us, it's going to be hard to be a Christian. It's going to be hard to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus told us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. So that's pretty sobering. But Abel has a good word for us, and we would do well to listen. So let's look at the second point here. Silent Abel is going to speak. Pretty brief point here, but God wants us to listen to Abel. So even though he never says a word in the narrative, did you notice that? He says nothing. 
in chapter 4 in the Bible as a whole, but he still speaks. So keep your finger in Genesis 4 and flip ahead to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 4. You can find it on page 1007 if you're using the Pew Bible. So it says there, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. By faith, he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the issue is, Abel trusted God. He, that's why he brought a pleasing sacrifice. Because, as it says two verses later in 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Abel was right with God by faith. Through his faith, though he died, though his life was snuffed out early, Though he was a victim of violence, though he was the voiceless one in the narrative, it is he who speaks eloquently for all time. His blood cries out for justice, certainly, but he says more than that. He is one of the witnesses in that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 refers to. He's cheering us on. He's joining with all the saints who've suffered at the hands of the offspring of the serpent and cries out, trust him, trust God. He's basically saying it's better to die in faith than to live for yourself. So he's encouraging us to trust God. He's also showing us, the narrative shows us, that God is going to protect his line. Okay, He's going to preserve the offspring of the woman. Even though Abel died, he carries on that line. So let's move from the episode between Cain and Abel to the tale of two family trees in the rest of the chapter here. So 17 to 26. Look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So Cain is the first city builder. To Enoch was born Erod, and to Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah, Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. So you have all these cultural developments, right? Farming and animal husbandry, music, art, the development of the arts, tools and weapons. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, we should have 316 kind of echoing in the background, your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. 
dominate you? Here's Lamech. Here he is. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So the movement is from Cain's selfish violence to a city that's away from the Lord. And so the development of technology and all of these developments, they're not bad in of themselves, but in this narrative, it's a picture where Yahweh's not in the picture at all. It's a picture of independence from God. And the trajectory just goes from bad to worse. The spread of sin from individual to family to society. Sin doesn't just ruin individual lives. It ruins human society and culture. And then in the seventh generation, we meet this guy, Lamech, who really embodies, embodies this kind of hellish trajectory. He takes two wives, so he rejects God's original design, and he's blazing his own path. And the rest of the book of Genesis is very clear testimony to what a mess that results in. <laughs> okay? The Bible does not anywhere condone bigamy or polygamy. It shows what a mess is a result of rejecting God's original design. His family, Lamech's family, makes all kinds of developments, you know, animals and arts and technology. Again, can be wonderfully good, but here it's in the service of godless self-sufficiency. And then to cap it all off, he's a stone-cold killer. He's bragging. He's putting his wives on notice. I've killed a boy for striking me. Nobody messes with Lamech and gets away with it. So Sidney Gridanis, a commentator, he said this, no one, no one will touch the violent Lamech. He does not need God's protection. Notice that God's name is not mentioned at all in these verses. He can fend for himself. Only seven generations, human beings boasting about their power to defend themselves. They don't need God. They don't need his law. They can be gods for themselves. This is the sin of Adam and Eve, only many times more defiant. With their cultural developments, they can fend for themselves only seven generations, and humanity has disintegrated into full-blown secularism, worldliness. But all is not lost. Look at the last two verses. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. So Enosh, oddly enough, means something like weakness. You remember Abel's name? Vapor. <laughs> we got vapor and weakness. That's going to be God's people. And then you have the serpent's people, like Lamech and Cain, killers with all their bravado. So you see what's happening here? The seemingly, actually verse 26 continues with, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You do that out of need. So the seemingly strong and self-sufficient are the seed of the serpent. The weak and fleeting are those who call upon the name of the Lord. So it's a tale of two cities, a tale of two family trees, the family of the serpent, the family of the woman, the family of God. City of man, city of God. Kingdom of this world, kingdom of, of Christ. So one is based on power and self-sufficiency. 
The other is based on faith and the sufficiency of God's provision and grace. Augustine in the City of God wrote this. He said, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, beware of Cain. We don't want to dwell in the city of man with him and his offspring. Beware of Cain. If you do trust in the Lord and follow Jesus, expect to be hated, to meet some opposition, just like Jesus was. But we can listen to Abel. He's cheering us on. Trust him. Trust him. It's worth it. It's better to have the approval, the smile of God, than the smile of those around you. In fact, it's better than life itself. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It's better to die in faith than live mastered by sin. But there's an even better word than the one that righteous Abel and his blood speaks. So we're going to close looking at Hebrews 12. So flip back to Hebrews and look at the end of chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. So, you know, the f- people of God in the Old Testament, they came to the Mount, Mount, Sin- uh, Mount Sinai, giving of the law, and it was scary because they were sinful and God was holy, and how could they dwell in his presence? And he descends on the mountain, and it's shaking and quaking, and they're like freaked out and afraid, and Moses goes up. But thankfully, we don't come to that mountain. We come to Mount Zion, verse 22, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, the gospel creates a party, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, like Abel, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So here's some blood we need to listen to. It speaks a really, really good word. Because you know what? If we are honest, we are all natural-born killers like Cain. We've all hated others. We are all guilty of murder. We are guilty of a cosmically capital offense. Just let the weight of that hit you, like for real. Yeah, we're in this building. You are guilty of a cosmically capital offense before God. He is white hot holy, and you and I, we deserve to be condemned, rejected forever. We all have had hate in our heart. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And what does God say to Cain-like people like you and me? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? All you have to do is trust me. 
by faith you can be forgiven and cleansed from all your sin and you can walk in newness of life. That's why Jesus came to die for all of our murderous intent, to wash us clean from it, and to make us new by his grace, make us a loving people by faith in Jesus. He's, he loved us and gave himself up for us so that we could become new people, loving people by grace through faith in Jesus. Cain took his brother's life. Jesus gave his life for his brothers and sisters. So when we know this crazy merciful pardon, we are empowered to extend it to others. We don't need to be eaten up by jealousy. We've got everything. We've got Jesus. We've got God. Peace with God. We don't have to be eaten with the acid of bitterness and anger. Life is not a zero-sum game. We've got God now and forever. And having God in His abundant mercy and grace, pardoning our infinite debt of sin, we are then empowered to forgive and to love, not hate, even our enemies. So did any of you have a thought come to mind when we read about Lamech and his 77-fold boast? Did that ring any bells with anyone? Where else do you hear of 70 and 7? Matthew 18, forgiven an infinite debt, how can we choke others over eh, a couple months' worth of wages? Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The typical answer at the time would be three times. So Peter's going to be like super spiritual, and he's going to say as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Let's go and do likewise in the power of the one who reverses the curse. The curse leads to Lamech and a nasty, spiteful, vengeance-filled heart. Jesus gives us a new heart and enables us to forgive 70 times 7. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing about the blood that washes away our sin. So if the musicians want to come up, we're going to sing nothing but the blood. God, we thank you so much that you are so merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that despite how we have been so hateful, we have turned from you, shaken our fists in your face, wanted to be little gods. You didn't give us what we deserve. You gave us your son. He gave his life to give us life and to make us new. So help us to trust in him with all of our heart and follow in his footsteps no matter what the cost. I pray that it would be our one desire to please you, to trust in you and please you. And if we have your smile, it doesn't matter who frowns on us and rejects us. So Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart and love our neighbors, even our enemies, and show ourselves to be children of God, belonging to your family line. In Jesus' name, amen.